Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We ask that as we look about loving um, well, particularly in marriage, but what love looks like in general uh, in this world, and ultimately the love that you have for us, we pray that you would illumine the eyes of our hearts, that we would know your love more deeply, and that you would practically show us how we can love those in our lives just a little bit more like you have loved us. So we ask for your help right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we uh, are back in the Keller book. We are looking at the chapter 5, Loving the Stranger, which we took a little aside for a few weeks where we looked at the Tremper Longman and Dan Allender book, The Intimate Mystery. I'm so glad that we did that. We looked at basically the importance of leaving all of our past allegiances with our father and mother uh, we looked at to what it means to leave, what it means to weave, so communication and that sort of thing, and the importance of developing emotional intimacy through words and through actions. And then ultimately we looked at the topic of sex a, a few times and just really tried to note this is something that God created, which is a good gift, and how can we be stewards of that in a day that confuses it. God bless you so much. So this week... Loving the Stranger, we're going to go back, if you remember a long time ago, where uh, Keller quotes Stanley Hauerwas, and this was the, the provocative quote by Stanley Hauerwas. He says, we never know whom we marry, we just think we do, or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change, for marriage being the enormous thing that it is means we are not the same person after we entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. And I love this because uh, whether it was Keller or Allender or both of them, they had said, you know, over the 30 plus years of their marriage, it was like they've been married. My wife's been married to five different people and they've all been the same person. Um, and context and experiences, having children, it changes us, the experiences of life. And so in many ways, what he's talking about in this chapter, after laying the first four chapters in his book, kind of on the theology, the, the foundation, the, the background of what marriage is all about, he gets into the detail of what are some tools, how can we actually really love this person when uh, he, he's quoting Gary Chapman a lot in this chapter and he says it's very normal to, to go from like the in love experience to having this complete disillusionment. And there's a number of responses that you can have to that. And if he asked the question, what, is, what, were, what were you expecting? What were you hoping to get out of marriage? Uh, if you look to marriage, as many in the world do today, to, to just find a compatible soulmate who is going to fulfill your needs at a relatively low cost and they're uh, never really going to challenge you. Yeah, I mean that, a low cost to yourself. Um, I think people look, at, look for a spouse who is never really going to challenge them that much. And, but they're going to be boring, not boring, but interesting. And, um, and he says, basically, if that's the way you're approaching marriage, when you reach this moment of disillusionment, when all of a sudden I've married, you're going to think I've married the wrong person. I've got to get out of this. And he says, however, if the, the view that he's been trying to articulate that marriage is a training ground for heaven, that you never marry the right person, and in fact, uh, it's God's design that he's taking two flawed people, perfectly flawed together, 
but meant to shape one another on this journey towards heaven where they are uh, loving one another and cleansing one another through God's work in their lives. He calls it the journey of spiritual friendship, awaiting the, what is it, the future glory self. Remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about how at the marriage uh, or the wedding when the couple's standing before one another and they're in their radiant garb, it's like just a dim shadow of what they're going to be when they stand before not just a priest in the name of God, but before God himself, radiant in splendor, not in apparel, but with their heart and their souls purified perfectly. That's the future glory self that they are anticipating and awaiting for. So if that's your view, that you're coming into marriage, and on the one hand, it lowers your expectations of finding this perfect person who's never really going to upset you or challenge you and who doesn't have any flaws themselves. So uh, that's what he's trying to say. All right, we need to look at marriage as this road of spiritual friendship toward our future glory self. So how do we do that? In this chapter, loving the, the stranger, he gives us three powers to help actually do the work of transforming and um, into the people that God's intended us to be. The power of truth, the power of love, and the power of grace. And he starts with the power of truth. And he makes this, you know, marriage is something so radically different than any other context and relationship, even something as intimate as a parent-child. If your child kind of, you know, starts cursing you or, you know, slandering you, as, as much as you love them, it doesn't, you can write them off a whole lot easier than, than a spouse who is actually uh, an equal who stands with you on the same footing and sees everything about you way more than a child does in many ways. Uh, it's also very different than cohabitating couples who are dating. Uh, when you're cohabitating, you are equals, but you don't have the same claims on one another, he points out. You don't have, uh, you know, you haven't merged your lives economically and legally and socially in the same way that married couples have. And therefore, when you start to have the oh man, I'm seeing all my flaws because we're living together, you can easily get out of that in a way that getting out of a marriage brings with it far more devastation. Uh, you don't feel the same amount of claim uh, on, from the other person. And therefore, their critiques really don't have that same escapable, inescapable kind of effect. So uh, speaking the truth is important because we have to first realize, I think for all of us, we're in denial. And marriage, I think at least in my own life, was shocking because I just didn't believe the claims of my wife that I was really this bad. Maybe you've experienced this in your own relationships. I don't know, but it's, yeah, that's really sweet. You can't be right. I know I'm not that bad. And so years and years of denial. And Keller talks about this. He gives this image of a, a bridge that I think is really helpful. You know, all of us have some serious flaws, be it, um, we can be, he, he lists like a laundry list. We can be proud and therefore selfish, and we could be oblivious to people around us. We can be a perfectionist and judgmental of others. We can be prone to irritability and impatience. We can be miserly and ungenerous. We can be fearful with lots of anxiety. We can be rigid and harsh and abrasive. And he says, you know, if you live together with a roommate, they may slightly drop a hint. Have you ever had a bad roommate situation? You know how difficult that is to actually try to bring a knowledge of the truth without just calling a bomb blowing up, basically. Um, 
But in marriage, eventually you get to the place where you are so comfortable with what, one another. And in dating, he always says, you're putting your best foot forward. And, but once you've grown accustomed to one another, our natural instincts kind of override. We can't catch ourselves from putting, when we try to put our best foot forward, now all of a sudden our real selves are bubbling up. And he gives this image of a, a bridge. Imagine a bridge that you can't even see the hairline fractures probably in the bridge, but over time you have t dozens and dozens of Mack trucks carrying tons of weight, and all of a sudden those hairline fractures that nobody could really see become really pronounced and really exposed. And that's a great image of what is actually happening in marriage. Uh, you, you are actually beginning to see what was already there, hiding for a while underneath the surface because your spouse is riding like a Mack truck and putting the weight on your heart in such a way that it reveals what was always already there. And as terrifying as that is, uh, and he, he does say, eventually, I'll, I'll give that quote in a second, just how hard it is to come to a real sense of who you actually are. Um, the first step in growing in your marriage is actually just accepting this. And it's, it's wonderfully freeing if you have the right expectations. Because, and this is something that stood out to me in rereading this chapter. Uh, on page 154, he says, it isn't ultimately your spouse, it isn't ultimately your spouse who's exposing the sinfulness of your heart. It's the marriage itself. Marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confrontation with you yourself. Do you get that? Like, I think it's so easy to pit one another against in marriage and that is really helpful if you approach okay this is what this institution was designed to do as much as i want to deny it is it's going to expose the cracks of my heart right and the, the brokenness of my heart and so therefore by design this institution is in fact working when you start having these that can't be true about me that's you know those moments of of recognizing that and so it's it's actually liberating when you start to, to sense one your spouse isn't just this terrible person, but they're actually doing the very thing that, um, that God created them to do in that moment. He gives an example of uh, just how this happens with the people of Rob and Jessica. He says Rob was like this mild sociopath as a child who was always just saying the truth to the point where it really hurt the people in his life and it would quickly end a lot of uh, friendships, relationships, and that sort of thing, till one day he finally met Jessica, who was no shrinking violet, it says. She could handle his uh, abrupt and um, terse truth-tellings and eventually would kind of give it right back to him. And uh, she was a strong, independent sort of person, but in her own life, she noticed that uh, when she was needed and she would often find herself running away during when things kind of got hard and she was dependent. And so what happened was these two, of course, fell in love. They did get married, but it was in their marriage where they started to see the truths about themselves. And instead, of, Jessica felt like instead of being able to run away, she had this bind that she was into because she had given marriage vows. And thankfully, she, she tried to live into them and she was able to address uh, some of her tendencies of wanting to run from conflict and, and hardship. And actually, she was, by God's creation, the exact instrument that, that uh, Rob needed 
to have the truths come home to his heart, that he could actually see himself as he really was. And he said in just about three years, their, their relationship changed dramatically. Rob's own parents couldn't even recognize him because all of a sudden he was more empathetic and kind in a lot of his responses, which, you know, we've talked about before. Marriage, by being with somebody completely different, as often is the case, will, at the very least, kind of knock off your rough edges. But what it's designed to do is that God's given you this particular person who's not just going to smooth off your rough edges, but God's going to actually transform your very heart into making you more and more like him through that. So instead of thinking at this moment, uh, as he says, this is the quote in page 158, he's he's not going to minimize the pain of disappointment. Uh, in seeing the dross and you know so if he's saying oftentimes we get married we can only see the gold that's there but we we kind of cloud our eyes to all the impurities in rose-colored glasses that sort of thing so the the precious metal the gold has impurities with it and that's every person who enters marriage and eventually you begin to see the truth about yourself and you start to see more and more your your spouse's impurities but also those in your own life. And he says this is certainly a disappointment. He doesn't want to minimize that. When people first begin to see the flaws in their spouses, some flee the marriage. Others just withdraw, downscaling their expectations of happiness almost completely, and learn to just get along. Others go into a long um, period of fighting and blaming their spouses for their unhappiness. All of these approaches actually share one thing in common. One spouse looks at his or her spouse's weaknesses and says, I need to find someone better than this. I think, if you're honest, probably we've all been tempted at least to think that at some point is I've married, just because of this narrative of what marriage is meant to be, you're finding your, your soulmate, and, and the question, the doubts of I married the wrong person is something, let's just name, I think is, is at least a temptation that probably almost all of us have experienced. Um, But what he says is that when we view the marriage and view Christian marriage the way that the Bible teaches, that someone better is actually the person you're already with. What he encourages you to do is to think of the person who's better, that someone better that you want to be with, as the future person that God is making them in and through the marriage. It's amazing how in all of this, what he's doing, instead of, you know, I've heard the image before where you're if you're fighting right and you have conflict back and forth instead of coming at one another what the the kind of posture that Keller's doing he doesn't explicitly say it but it's basically putting the problem on the table and then turning together and then addressing the problem it's it's diffusing the conflict and tension directly with the spouse which is which is a really powerful thing the thing that i think most stood out to me i'll be honest with you grab a bible Look at Romans chapter 7. I want to read some of this with you. This is what really stood out to me in terms of, okay, seeing the truth about yourself, and, but also seeing your spouse as they really are. This provided, it was a, I, I, you know, I've read this book several times, but catching something different every time. He said, uh, Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 14. Ah, that's not going to do you any good. You need, yeah. So Romans chapter 7, do you all know what page that's on? Yeah. Some, 
Oh, uh, okay. Well, all right. This is kind of where it is in my Bible. Notice it's towards the end, so flip. Or use, use the table of contents. That's kind of the way I go about it. But all right, listen to these words. Maybe you've heard it before, but think about what this means in the context of marriage. I've never thought about this passage through the glimpse of marriage. This is Paul the Apostle talking. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So, no long, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. And he goes on to say, what a wretched man that he is. Who's going to deliver him from this situation? He says, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is the one who delivers him. Now the reason, you know, what what Keller ends up saying is that passage, when you think about your spouse... This is a Christian. Paul is not, this is not him before he was a Christian. This is the struggle of the Christian life that we have. Uh, when when you become a Christian, the Bible says you're a new creation. You have a new heart. You've been born again. But there's this old man, the old Adam, the flesh that's still inside of us. But that part isn't the truest thing about us, Keller says. And now think about what that means when you're in a disagreement with your spouse. You can actually begin, and, and when you start to have those thoughts of, I've married the wrong person, I need somebody else. Well, that somebody else, he's saying, is think about the truest thing about your spouse is not them and their flaws. It's actually the truest thing about them. The gold that's really there is what, is what God is making them. And, and yes, in this life, there's still going to be these impurities that keep showing up. And he's certainly not saying this is, you should not hold the person accountable when they have made mistakes. You absolutely, um, and this, Paul himself is not excusing his behavior. Rather, he's identifying the truest thing, his very identity as a Christian, is the gold that's there. And so what stood out to me is thinking about, okay, in conflict with a spouse, seeing not the failures as evidence of this terrible person that they're never going to change, Rather, the impurities that are being washed away by God's work in and through me. And I think uh, when you approach it that way, all of a sudden, again, it's like putting the problem on the table. It's, it's less heated when it comes to the spouse. And you begin to have more hope. You begin to have more compassion towards the person that's there without dismissing, undermining any real damage that was actually caused in the conflict. Does that make sense? Maybe, okay, maybe not. Um, Well, I had never thought of Romans 7 from that passage, uh, or from the perspective of marriage before. So, uh, this is, yeah. Did did I read? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
you know, you know this was wrong. And because I see you this way, that's why I can't allow you to go down this way, because the real you is not showing up in front of me right yeah. now. So I'm going to, essentially you're saying that I'm going to hold you to a higher standard of your better self. That's why we're disciplined. Yeah. I think that's what God does with us. And that's if right. I'm hearing you right, we need to do this with one another. And in other words, speak what we see, the same thing God tells us, speak those things which be not as though they were. I think, you know, he, that faith comes by hearing, and I think mm-hmm. children or spouses or anyone, it's so easy to want to be critical of listening and they're like, oh, yeah. this, right? Yeah. But I think to speak the truth and love in a place that says, I want better for you, and I'm here mm-hmm. in this process with you, you know, yeah. I got, like we were talking about, I got down there in the ditch with you, know? yeah. <laughs> I got down there, and I'm lifting you up, I'm going to get everything I'm here, yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's having a clear vision of who God is making them to be in and through your relationship with them and others. It's having the confidence to know, I think particularly in, mar- in parenting, nobody's thinking, I've got the wrong child. I have to, you know, I'm going to go and go find somewhere else. It's, it's in marriage where you're like, I've made a mistake. I need to go so, somewhere else. And so it's in that moment of looking, not becoming so embittered at the, um, at the person you've married, but thinking this, this, and especially if two people are Christians, the truest thing about them is that they, are, they belong to God and they are becoming a glorious future self. So, yeah, I think that's, but, but berating, you know, change never happens. Um, Mumford and Sons is one of my favorite bands and there's this great line where I forget which song it's in but it's he says it's not the long walk home that's going to change this heart but the welcome that I receive with the restart and I I think the way I hear that is it's not you know what changes hearts and we'll actually get to this at the end what changes hearts is not constant finger wagging and blaming and uh, holding someone up to all of their failures. What changes hearts is a fierce love mixed with grace that, it's all three of these, it's a a truth-telling that is insistent upon loving the person. And it it has a whole atmosphere of grace tied to it. And that's actually a a perfect uh, segue to to what's going on. Well, before we get there, I think this is, the reason I looked at Romans 7 is, he says, with a Christian view of marriage, God has indeed given us a desire for a perfect spouse, but you should seek it in the one that you've married. Why discard this partner for someone else only to discover that person's deep hidden flaws? Some people with serial marriages go through the cycle of infatuation, disillusionment, rejection, and flight to someone else over and over. The only way you're going to actually begin to see another person's glory self is to to stick through, uh, to stick with this person. If you remember, that's why he said the stats, two-thirds of the people who, just, who are in unhappy marriages, if they just stick with it for five years, that will probably become happy. Two-thirds of people in unhappy marriages. Um, and this is actually, uh, when we look at last week on singleness, and we kind of zoom out on what marriage is really all about, and we look at it from different perspectives. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how to judge whether or not this is a, a good potential spouse. How, what are some wise ways of thinking about this process of dating? Well, he gives one, and I think it's worth saying. He says, uh, here's a test. 
whether the person that you're dating would be a good spouse. And the test is this. When you see that person's flaws, do you just want to run away? Or do you have a desire to move towards that person and actually work together on the flaws? I think that's exactly what marriage is meant to do. It's probably, it's not the only test, but it's a good test for discerning, is this a person that you actually want, should and want to marry? Uh, he ends the chapter on truth with, I love this, is, um, Kathy, his wife, uh, she calls it a godly tantrum. She's brilliant. Apparently, Dan Allender and Kathy, or Tim Keller, both have wives uh, like my own who are way better than I am. But he, came, he basically made this agreement. They were pastors in Virginia. Uh, he was. And they had three kids, and they were going to go plant a church in New York City in Manhattan. And it was like everything they had learned along the way was this is going to be incredibly demanding. Starting a church, it's going to require you to work insane hours for about three years. And so they agreed as they start this, all right, you know, Tim said to Kathy, Kathy, will you let me uh, go and do this? And she said, okay, for three years. Well, three years came and it went. And he goes, well, I just need a couple more months of, of doing this. Well, that happened a couple times. Then he comes home one day, and the door to the patio in their New York apartment is open, and he hears shattering, and he's freaking out. She's on the floor of the balcony with a hammer and their wedding china, and smashing the wedding china. There's two shattered things, and she looks at him. And he's like, she's had a mental breakdown. What has happened? I don't know what's going on. It, it's, yeah. This is what she says to him with hammer in hand. <laughs> you're not listening to me. You didn't realize that if you keep working these hours, you're going to destroy this family. I don't know how to get through to you. You aren't seeing how serious this is. This is what you're doing and smashes the third saucer, and he's going, okay, okay, I hear you, I hear you, let's put the hammer down uh, and talk. And eventually, um, she comes to realize, or he's now listening to her in a way that he's never listened before, as you can imagine. And he's finally seen the truth about, in a way that, you know, he's just had these, he hasn't fully addressed the truth about his workaholism in these three years, and he wasn't listening. Well, now he's listening. And he said there was this amazing blend. I mean, he goes, when I came, I thought you were having an emotional breakdown. I thought you were absolutely losing it. But you weren't, you weren't actually out of control emotionally. There was a fierceness. There was an anger. But you didn't belittle me. You weren't trying to uh, you know, abuse me of anything. You were just speaking the truth very firmly, very directly, so that I would see it. And he goes, what, I mean, about these, you know, saucers that you, I mean, this is the wedding china, and she goes, actually, <laughs> you'll notice that over the years, our, our wedding china, we haven't had three, we ended up breaking three cups along the way over the years, so I only had three saucers that didn't have matching cups, and so I'm really glad you sat down before I had to break any more of the wedding china. <laughs> she was on her last one that was going to, she was all part of the plan. <laughs> Me too. Me too. But you notice it's not, it's not, it's not an anger um, that, that, um, that destroys the other. It's a righteous 
indignation for the good of the other person. It's in love, and there was, there was grace tied to it too, I think, but it was not, um, I mean, you see that, I'm, I'm belaboring the point, but I think that's important. Don't shrink back from speaking the truth. So the next thing, the power of love, and this is really important. So marriage has the power to expose us. And you have to only go like a week in marriage, maybe a day, before you realize what kind of intense exposure it brings. It has the power to reveal the truth about just how broken we are. But thankfully, marriage also has the power to heal our deepest wounds. And he says that, you know, all of us have our own self-image that we bring into marriage. And usually we're our own worst critic. And what's amazing, uh, you know, the... In the same sense that the person who's with you and who sees everything about you has the ability to, to expose you in ways that are incredibly intense and, and true in a way that nobody else can. But that same person has such incredible power to transform and heal even the worst things that you have said about yourself. And he says, you know, if, if the whole world says that you're ugly, if your spouse thinks you're beautiful, you actually feel beautiful. That's the power that this beloved person has over your heart. And he confessed, you know, his whole life, he was a nerd before it was fashionable to be a nerd, he said. But for, for him, he says that Kathy always, she's always quick to point out when he truly did something courageous. And she was always like his knight in shining armor for, um, for him, even though he, he basically knew he was, he was pretty nerdy. And so this incredible power has, it comes from the fact that this person has the credibility to speak into it because they have the credibility, they're going to say the truth, hopefully. And that's the danger, actually, when you, when you shrink back from telling the truth, you lose the power to transform that person for the good. When you just settle for, I just don't want to have any arguments, I don't want to have any conflict, I'm not going to really... Um, speak the truth that this person needs to hear, when you do that, you lose the ability to actually change that person through the power of God's Spirit in their life. So speaking the truth is important, but it has to be a, a truth that is meant for in love. Well, how do we actually do that? And this is where he goes, this is a really, really important skill that we have to learn. How do we give life-healing love to our spouses, not just that we're giving, but they actually feel feel that kind of love. We talked last uh, several classes about the importance of family of origin, looking at who you are is very much a product of the family that you grew up in and the things that you value. He shared this, how he went over to her house for dinner the first time, and in his family, his dad was working always crazy hours, and his mom loved that he worked so much and that she considered it her act of love to make sure that nobody in the house would have to clean up after dinner or anything like that because they rec- that, that was her way of serving and loving the family. Well, in her family, she, the mom expected everyone to take everything to the dinner table. That's what it meant to, to be a part of the family and to love the family. And so he went to dinner there, and she was shocked when Tim just basically just got up from the table and left when they were done with it and was like, this is, well, Kathy, what kind of person are you bringing into this family was, was her reaction. But he said it's not just some sort of um, domestic division of labor that was the difference in their, uh, in their disagreement. He said it was actually about the way that what he called love currency, the way each of them felt love, 
And he bring, what, what's amazing about this chapter is he brings in C.S. Lewis, who, who knows there's four different kinds of love. He wrote a book called The Four Loves. There's affection, there's friendship, there's erotic love or sex, and then there's service. And so we talked about sex enough the last two weeks. You can go back and listen to that one. But he's focusing on service, friendship, and affection. And what he does is in each of those areas, you're meant, that's kind of the, all four of those ways you're supposed to love a spouse. Um, but particularly in affection, friendship, and service, how can you in those realms of marriage really offer love in a way that the person actually feels it? Because if there's one thing that Gary Chapman, have you read the five love languages? Have anybody heard of this book? It's a really insightful thing. He's basically like, it does no good to offer love in a way that the person that you're trying to offer love, if they, if they just don't experience it that way. So, for instance, he calls it love languages, but if you were to go to China and fall in love with somebody who doesn't speak English and look at them sincerely and say, I love you, that person will not feel any sort of love by those words because they have no idea what you're trying to say. And so you actually have to translate your love to give what that person, the particular way that they feel love. It's a good insight. Uh, the, the five love languages that Chapman says are quality time, physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, and gifts. And so it's, it's pretty important. If you haven't read that book, become familiar a little bit in those. But recognize, I think, that those change with seasons. You can have seasons where you prefer words of affirmation. Then there'll be other times where you just really want acts of service, you know, and um, I don't think it's like the Enneagram where you have like one kind of type and this is who you are your whole kind of life. This is Love languages come and go given the context of where you are. But what Keller does is he looks in, on pages 176 through 179 uh, the ways that affection, friendship, and service, those kind of realms of your marriage, uh, how, acts of, or how um, love languages are particularly important in looking at each of those. So for effect, I'll leave you to, I was going to read all those, but we don't have the time to do it. Um, I really commend, if, this is probably the best part of the chapter, 176 through 179, where you, you have to recognize what are the ways that my spouse is going to feel love in the area of friendship, in the area of affection, and in the area of service. There's a problem, however, and this is where we get to the last power the problem is that the person in the world who holds your heart in her hand, whose approval and affirmation you most long for and need, is the very one who is hurt most deeply by your sins more than anyone else on the planet. So the problem is that we often will abuse that power that we have over the other person because we still have the impurities of our hearts. We're still selfish and we will abuse that power for our own gain. So instead of speaking the truth, for the good of the other, we'll speak the truth to make them pay and make them hurt to make ourselves feel better. But that is not how we're called to speak the truth in love. And so, ultimately, we have to have this third power, the power of grace. The power of grace is the only way to keep truth and love together. And he gives this, he's citing somebody from seminary who gave this analogy. Have you ever done the, um, oh, what's it called, gem tumbling? Well, is that what it's called? I think that's what it's called. But like, um, you know, gems, when they come out, they're very dull. They're not shiny. They have all those impurities, right? Rock tumbling. Rock tumbling. That's right. Yeah. And so... Because you don't tumble gems. You pass the gems. You tumble rocks. 
Well, that's what he said, but okay, we're fastening gems. There you go, I like that. Um, and you put, them, you put them in a container, right? And they, they go around, and here's the problem. They can either, um, what, what if you just stick them in there without this kind of unique compound, this, um, this sort of substance that's going to keep them actually from not just glancing off one another, uh, but at the same time, you don't want them to have head-on collisions that are going to shatter them. Those are the two dangers, that they just glance off and nothing happens, or that they just come and they break. The only way that you can actually, in a gem tumbler or fastener, you, um, you have to put this compound in there, and then all of a sudden, they rumble and they tumble, and then out comes from this dull stone comes this beautiful, shiny gem. And he says, that's what marriage is like. And actually, the compound is grace. Grace is going to be the only thing that can, you know, if you just spoke the truth, it can come and shatter, right? And if you never spoke the truth and you just kind of were soft and affirming and loving, it would just glance off. It would never penetrate. It would never do the work that it would need to do. You would just, you would never penetrate the heart. And so in order to change it, you have to have truth and love and this compound of grace. It's a great little analogy. analogy. And so, um, that is, I think, one of the most important things, and it goes back to what he shares all throughout this book, is that it's, marriage is a picture of the gospel. And uh, I'll end with this quote, page 183. One of the most basic skills in marriage is the ability to tell the straight, unvarnished truth about what your spouse has done, and then completely, unselfrighteously, and joyously express forgiveness without a shred of superiority, without making the other person feel small. This does not mean you can't express anger. In fact, if you never express anger, your truth-telling probably won't sink in. But forgiving grace must always be present, and if it is, it will, like salt and meat, keep the anger from going bad. Then truth and love can live together, because beneath them both you've forgiven your spouse as Christ has forgiven you. That is the heart of the chapter. And it's one of the most important quotes in the whole book, I think. And if you need a picture of what that looks like, Kathy on the porch with the hammer is a great, I think, image of she's not punishing, she's not taking revenge out, she's speaking the truth unselfrighteously, um, having already forgiven him, and even having the sense of righteous anger to it, but an anger that is not going bad. And so the way you can do that, and he said this throughout the book, you only can do that when you yourself has been, have been loved by God that way. The gospel shows you that you are far worse because the truth about yourself is revealed, that you are way worse than you ever imagined. So it provides an incredible amount of humility. But the, the reality is the gospel also says that God has loved you so much that he's given up himself for you to put himself in your place, to reconcile you at the cost of his life because he loves you that much. That will give you a sort of emotional strength and wealth that you need when you have to address your spouse. You're not drawing from your spouse the strength that you need. You're drawing it from God who loves you like that. You have incredible wealth emotionally and spiritually, and you have incredible humility, and those are the ways you can keep truth and love together. Um, so it was a great chapter very complementary in many ways to what Allender, his whole book was, which was looking at how we can love one another, giving us practical tools. Um, questions briefly as we wrap up. Thoughts?
It is five after, so you probably don't even have time for it. Sorry. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll head on. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of, of Christians who've gone before us. We do confess our sense of superiority, not just over our spouses, but over those that we meet. Thank you that your love gives us the courage to be exposed and to be seen without glancing away, without taking revenge, but that we can look, as we've said a couple of times, to who you're making us into and have the confidence that the work that you began will, br- will actually be brought to completion at that great last day where we will stand before you, where we will stand before our spouses and the reality will, be, um, will come to fruition, that we will be perfectly free from our sin perfectly transformed into the glorious nature that you have given us in your Son. So Lord, help us to be strong, to be committed to this great and daunting journey of of loving uh, the way you have loved us, whether in or out of marriage, and that those people that we love and encounter would in fact uh, grow closer to you and become who you've made them to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.